Today's teaching text comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can sit down. Hey, thanks so much for being here. It's so good to have you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. And I want to say, especially for those of you that are here and you're wrestling with belief in Jesus, man, join the club. We're all in many ways wrestling and trying to figure out how to wrestle with those claims and follow Jesus in this world. So there's not a question that you could ask that's off limits, and you don't have to believe what we believe to belong here. We're just glad that you're a part, so thanks for coming. And uh, man, hopefully, I think today really will be helpful no matter where you find yourself. Um, One of my favorite things to do is to study renewals and revivals throughout history. And when we say renewal, we're talking about that reality of We all just need moments in our lives where we have a fresh touch from God. We drift, we we fall, we move, we, we, we walk away in many ways from Jesus. And time and time again, what he does throughout history is he pours out revivals. And one of the, one of the most incredible revivals actually happened uh, not long ago. It was in 1949 through 1952. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but this is amazing. And I just want to say some of these stories to kind of stir your heart and get your imagination spinning. Uh, what happened is right off the coast of, of Scotland, there were two elderly ladies. Uh, one was 82. She had really bad arthritis. One was 84. She was totally blind. They were sisters, and they felt really burdened for their church that was dying. And when I say dying, I don't mean like just numerically. I mean literally people were dying out in their church. Uh, they were 82 and 84, and they were some of the younger people in the church, if that gives you a perspective of where they were at. There wasn't anybody under the age of 70 in this church, and so they, began bur- be- they were so burdened that the faith wasn't getting passed down to the next generation. So what these two old ladies did, I'm going to show you a picture of them here. What they did is uh, two nights a week, they got down on their knees, and from 9 p.m. to about 3 to 4 a.m. in the morning, they would just cry out to God for revival. They would cry out to God, would you pour out your spirit on our church, and would you bring an awakening to our church? Now, what happened about two months later, this went on for about two months. What happened two months later is amazing. It's known as the Hebrides Revival, and it is unbelievable what began to take place. Hundreds and hundreds of people in the middle of the night would just start waking up and running out of their houses and running to the church and saying, is there someone here that can tell me about Jesus? Uh, They they had dance halls or like what we might call a club today, uh, emptying out uh, over a hundred people at a time, emptying out of the dance halls, running to the church. And and, and the pastor couldn't even get up to preach because there was a a young woman on on the stairs crying out, oh God, is there mercy for me? 
is there mercy for me? I mean, just unbelievable stories of lobster fishermen leaving their boats on the shore, uh, leaving all of their, their nets and everything and running to the church. People were getting saved by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And this went on from 1949 to 1952. And it all started by two older ladies getting on their knees and praying. And if you ever read Revival, if you ever study Revival, what you'll, what you'll realize and find is that prayer is always something that is like the, the kickoff to the whole thing. You, you can't find any Revival that's ever happened where prayer hasn't been a huge feature. And so I don't know of a better way to end this series on renewal. We've spent seven weeks talking about what does it look like to put ourselves underneath the blessing of God for him to pour out his spirit on us. What does it look like to do that? And I can't think of a better way to end than to talk about prayer and the role of prayer and our own personal renewal and revival that might happen in our church. Now, here's what happened when I said that we're going to talk about prayer. There there are a couple responses in your heart, whether you detected this or not. Uh, let, Let me just name a few things that took place. The first thing that happened with some of you is like, oh man, this thing on prayer, I'm already skeptical. I have some pessimism around prayer because I've prayed for things and not only did God not answer what I thought in the way that I thought he would, but actually the exact opposite of what I was praying for took place. So you've got hurt around prayer. Uh, Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you just don't think prayer actually works. You're like, yeah, I think that's just a therapeutic thing that you Christians do to feel better, but you're talking to the air and it doesn't actually matter for your life. So that's in us, at least in some of us in the room, that's a thing that happened in your heart when I said that we're gonna talk about prayer. Probably most of you, this is what happened in your heart. Oh yeah, yeah, prayer, I, I should probably pray more. I should probably do that. My prayer life isn't what I want. I know that my prayers aren't very intense. I know that I don't spend a lot of time in prayer. I get distracted frequently in prayer. And so for you, you just immediately felt a level of guilt and a a level of condemnation about your prayer life. And so that's where many of us are. And can I tell you the one response that I promise you did not happen to anybody in the room? Nobody in the room is like, oh, we're talking about prayer today? That's awesome because I'm basically amazing at prayer. I consider myself to be a man or a woman of prayer. I mean, people know me as a prayer warrior. I'm just, I I am great at prayer. I don't have any issues around this thing called prayer. If that's you, you should come on up now, take off the mic off of me. We'll put it on you and we'll just listen to what you have to say for the rest of the day. Like, here's what's funny. Can I just make an observation? I've, I've never, ever met a Christian that was like, you know, one thing I'm amazing at is prayer. I'm just so good at it. No, actually, almost every Christian I've ever talked to would say, I I wish that I prayed more. My prayer life feels clunky at times. I don't exactly know how to do it. And I wish that it were more intense. I wish it were better than it really is. And so just to level the playing field and to help us all take off our mask collectively, could I just ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you wish your prayer life was better than it currently is, would you just raise your hand so that we could all see? All right, now look around the room. All right, you should feel good about your terrible prayer life because we're all here with you. We're all here with you. And that's what we're talking about today. We need what Jesus has to say. But something he says in Luke is really ironic. Look at Luke 18 verse 1. This is how he starts off. He says, And Jesus told them a parable, which is like a short story with a point. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray, and look at this, and not lose heart. And that's the irony because he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray all the time, but I don't want you to lose heart. And the reality is that many of us actually lose heart because of our prayer life. 
We lose heart because of the state of our prayers. And we think, man, God probably doesn't want anything to do with me because of my prayer life. This is why we need the story from Jesus in Luke 18. So there are three important questions that I'm going to ask you about prayer, and then we're going to answer these questions together. Now, uh, I, I know that some of you that are like more theologically nerdy, you know, are, are, you're going to hear these questions and you're going to go, I cannot believe that he's asking these simple, simple questions. And I just want to remind you that a few minutes ago, you raised your hand and said, your prayer life sucks. So um, I'm just not assuming anything. And we're going to start on the basics, right? So basic question number one, but it's really important. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Another way to ask this is, what, what does prayer exist for? What are we actually praying for? Why does it exist? And this is interesting because there's a lot of answers that can be thrown out on this question, and there's, there's even some disagreement. So some might say, well, prayer exists for God. It exists for God. It exists so that we could make God feel loved and so that we could tell him how powerful he is and how great he is. And so it's really to praise God. Prayer exists to please him and make him happy. That's one answer. Uh, Other people might say, well, prayer actually exists uh, for the really strong Christian. You know, so it's like if you're, if you just got saved, you just started following Jesus, then you might like, you know, need to like start out small and just read the Psalms. And then eventually you'll creep into other scary parts of the Old Testament, you know? And, and, then, and then maybe as you mature in your faith, eventually you can get to the place where you could start to pray on a consistent basis. Prayer is for strong Christians and mature Christians. And actually this parable, Jesus wants to tell us that prayer exists for a very different reason. It doesn't exist primarily for God and it doesn't exist for the strong Christian. So look at what Jesus says in this parable. Luke 18 verse 2. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. We'll get to the judge in just a minute. Verse three, and there is a widow in that city who kept coming to him, the judge, and saying, give me justice against my adversary. There's only two characters in the story. There's the judge and there's the widow. And this is interesting because a widow, and we don't know the details of the story, but this specific widow is on the uh, receiving end of injustice. She's on the receiving end of mistreatment and persecution. And so what she's doing is she's saying, I don't have the power to fix this. So I've got to go and make my case to the judge because he can fix this. So that's at least on the surface what's happening in the story. But honestly, as uh, Oklahomans that live in 2019, we miss out on so much because we don't understand the culture of what's happening here. In order to really get at what Jesus is driving us towards, you have to know a little bit about widows in the Greco-Roman world, especially in the first century. In the Greco-Roman world, um, here's the reality, and, and this isn't helpful or good or right, but it's true. Even just to be a woman in the first century, you were already at a disadvantage. You were at a massive disadvantage. And, and if you're like, well, it's, it's the same today. Well, trust me, it was way worse in the first century. Because your voice as a woman was not even eligible to be received in a court of law. If you witnessed a crime as a woman and you came in and you're like, I was an eyewitness, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't count. Because you were seen as less than from other men. 
Women were at a disadvantage, but widows had it even worse. And widows were not primarily older people because they were getting married at a a much younger age. Uh, Oftentimes, widows would be in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, they would be widows. And and, and think about it, in our culture today, we've got things like 401ks and retirement plans and life insurance and uh, government assistance. In the Greco-Roman world, they didn't have any of that. And so what would happen if you were a widow is that you would actually not be eligible to receive your husband's inheritance. If he had a lot of money and he died, none of that money would go to you because you were a woman. And so what would happen is that money would go to the sons in the family. And if there weren't sons in the family, then it would go to the extended other male family figures that were out there. And so you as a widow had two options. You could either, one, stay with your new uh, husband's family. But if you did, you'd be given an inferior role in the household. You'd be seen as uh, not quite a slave, but not much better. And you'd have to work in many ways and do dirty jobs and, and serve the family to just kind of earn your existence there. Or what you could do is you could leave. You could leave and go back to your own mom or dad. But if you chose to do that, the money that you were given in your wedding, because there was always an exchange of money during the wedding, the money that you were given in your wedding would go back to your husband's family, and then you could leave. And so think about this. Widows, as a result, being pushed to the fringe of society, were often sold in slavery to pay off debt. They are often mistreated or turned into prostitutes just to earn their way. So here's the point. Being a widow in this culture was a devastating reality. It meant you had no power. It meant you had no voice. It meant that you were helpless. It meant that you were on the the, the receiving end of any sort of oppression or persecution that anybody wanted to do. And if you're like, well, I just would pretend to not be a widow. No, you actually were given special clothing to wear so that everybody could identify you as a widow. This is a really, really tough culture to be a widow. Now, now follow me here. Here's what's interesting about this story. Jesus gives us two characters, the judge and the widow. And can you guess out of these two characters which ones he's identifying us with? It's the widow. What Jesus is saying is, hey, uh, life on planet Earth for you as human beings, you are as vulnerable, you are as powerless, you are ultimately as helpless as this widow was in the first century. Like that's your state of being as a human being in the world. You're vulnerable, you're voiceless, you're powerless. You don't ultimately have what it takes to survive. You need rescue from the outside. You need somebody from the outside to come in and help you and fight for you. Now, this is a little bit offensive to us, isn't it? We're like, thanks, Jesus. You just basically called us powerless and weak and vulnerable and helpless. And that kind of rubs against our American winner's script, doesn't it? We see ourselves as winners. We see ourselves as powerful. We see ourselves as we're self-starters. We're self-made people. I worked for my job. I earned this place. I earned this house. I earned this income. I, and we often don't view ourselves as vulnerable and helpless and weak, do we? So uh, one of the ways I want to try to help you become a more aware in an honest way of your own vulnerable reality is just to remind you that we often think that we're better than we really are. We often think that we're different than reality would say that we are. Like, th- this is why these memes are so popular, right? Have you seen this? It's okay to laugh, by the way, because that is legitimately funny. Uh, here, here's another one. This was my experience, right? 
that's what I'll look like. And nope, that's what I look like actually. So he, he, here's, here's my point. These go around like crazy and you've seen a variety of those. And, and the, the, we laugh because it's like, yeah, I know what it's like to, in my mind, think of myself one way. And then in reality, I'm actually something very different. And I just want to say as Americans, you think of yourselves as powerful, as strong, as capable, self-starters. You have what it takes. And what Jesus wants to say to you is you're actually weak, you're vulnerable, and you're in more need than you ever even realize. Now, there are beautiful moments in life where that realization hits you, isn't it? And you don't always think it's beautiful, but like when you get that bad doctor's report, you all of a sudden realize how frail you really are. When you, when you have like your marriage starts to fracture and break and there's nothing you can do, you begin to realize I'm actually in desperate need. When you slip into depression that you cannot seem to get out of, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you go to counseling, you can't seem to claw your way out of the anxiety and the depression, you're, you're exposed to the real need that you have. And those are all painful, painful realities. But listen, when addiction is having the last say, when your sin is having the last say, when you don't have anything else to offer, there's something beautiful behind that. And it's actually God trying to help you see you are more weak than you realize. You're more vulnerable than you realize. You're more helpless than you realize. And that is the first step to actually stepping into prayer. Friends, we do not pray because we are strong. We do not pray because we have it all together. We don't cry out to God because everything is going the way that we had hoped. We pray because we are weak. We pray because we're vulnerable. We pray because we're like this widow. And whether it's injustice or persecution or marital stuff or relationship stuff or or financial, whatever it might be for you, you, you are exposed at various points in life to your helplessness. And that's the first step towards prayer. I love these words from Paul Miller, who wrote my favorite book on prayer, A Praying Life. He says, Jesus does not say, come to me, all you have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So maybe to make one observation, why you don't pray or why I don't pray is because of this this subtle facade that I put on that I actually have it all together. This subtle facade that I put on that actually says I have power and I have ability and I have, I have what it takes to make it through. And when you come to the bottom of yourself, you realize you're actually more like this widow in the story and you need this judge to come in and give you the justice that you cannot work for yourself. This is why we pray because we're weak. So second reason or second question that we need to ask. First was, why do we pray? So, well, it's not because we're strong. It's not primarily for God. We pray because we're weak, we're vulnerable, and we're helpless. Here's the second question. Who are we praying to? Who are we praying to? So, uh, in order to answer that question, we need to look at this other character in the story. Luke 18, verse 2. Look at this. And Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Seems like a great guy, doesn't he? He's like, you know what? I don't like God and I don't like people. Other than that, I'm here to do my work, you know? It's like, you're gonna make a great judge. That's all it says about this guy. We don't know anything about him. We don't know if he had grandkids. Hope he didn't. 
We don't know if he has like family or friends, probably not. All we know is, hey, I'm your judge today and I hate God and I hate people. So what's your case? Go ahead and tell me. And what happens is this widow, she comes to this judge and it's like, well, man, she, she like did not look out on this deal. She got the judge that hates God and hates people. So she shows up and she's like, hey, I'm on the receiving end of injustice and there, there's persecution and there's, there's these problems that I have and, and I need you to step in. And the judge is like, no, I'm not going to do it because I hate you and I hate God. So I'm not going to do it. She's like, why? But I really need. So then it, it goes on and this goes on, I don't know, weeks so like he like walks out of his house early one morning, coffee in hand, briefcase. And she's like, hey, good morning, judge. I was sleeping on your porch and love to talk to you about my case. And he's like, no, we're not going to talk about the case. And so she follows him to work. How, how's your day? And uh, how do you feel about mistreating widows? And how do you sleep at night with yourself? And, 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 then, and then, you know, he's on his way home from, from his, his day of hating God and hating people and doing his work. And, and she's like, I'd love to talk to you about my case. And can I get some justice now? And this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then look what finally happens. Look what Jesus says in verse four. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. He's overwhelmed. He's like, please leave me alone. Yes, you can have the justice that you need. Now, what is Jesus trying to say here? Is Jesus trying to say, all right, you're the widow, you're helpless, you're vulnerable, and I'm this judge. I hate people, but if you bother me enough, I'll finally give in. No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, the key to this whole story is in verse six. Look at verse six. And the Lord said, here's his whole point of the parable. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? See, this is an argument from like lesser than to the greater than. He's saying, all right, look, you've got this judge and this judge hates God and hates people. But guess what? Even he eventually stepped in and gave this widow what she needed. And if this unrighteous judge would do that, how much more would I do that? Not primarily as a judge, but as a good father when his elect cry to him day and night. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, you don't have to come and nag me because I'm not this unrighteous judge who is gonna mistreat you and do you wrong and not give you what you need. I'm a father that wants to step in. How much more if he did it, how much more will I do it for you? See, one of the biggest barriers that you have in prayer is not just the weird way that you view yourself. I'm strong. I have what it takes. I'm powerful. No, you're actually weak and vulnerable and helpless. And once that gets resolved in your heart, the prayers start to flow. But the other big barrier that we have in prayer is the broken view of God that we carry around in our pocket all the time, that we cannot seem to get rid of no matter how hard we try. We often view God as an unrighteous judge who is removed far away, this deity that doesn't really know me, just knows general facts about humanity and doesn't really want to have any interest in my life whatsoever. And over and over and over, what happens with Jesus is he's constantly trying to change your perspective on God, not primarily on prayer. He's like, no, just think about God differently and then you'll pray differently. Think about God differently. Don't think about God this way. Think about God this way and then you'll pray differently. In fact, here's what's so interesting. When Jesus goes to teach us how to pray, how does he start? 
Matthew 6, look at this, verse 9. Pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not our great and powerful deity, our almighty judge of the living and the dead. No, those are true statements, but Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. You can approach him as Father. This is interesting to me. There are only three parables on prayer in the New Testament. So out of all the parables, there's only three on prayer in the New Testament. All of them show up in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. And what's interesting about this is that each one of these prayers, what Jesus is trying to do is not primarily teach us how to pray. He's trying to teach us how to view God differently because if you'll just do that, you will start to pray. It's so interesting. Here's one of them. The first parable on prayer is a friend that comes to another friend at midnight. This is a bizarre story. He's like, it's, it's midnight. I mean, so this is like, uh, it's been hours and hours since the sun has gone down and he's in bed with his kids, which is a weird note, but you know, first century, small houses. And he, he like shows up at his friend's house. He knocks on the door and he's like, hey, I know this is weird and awkward, but uh, some random guest came to my house and is staying with me and I don't have any food to give them. And I was just hoping I could wake up your entire family and that you would get out of your bed and wake up your kids so that you could give me some of your food so I could go give it to him. And the guy's like, no way, go away. It's in the middle of the night. And he's like, no, 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 I, I really need the food. And finally the friend's like, ah, fine, all right, what do you need? And gives him the food and he leaves. And what Jesus is trying to say in that story is, hey, I'm not like this friend that's cranky and grumpy. It's never midnight with me. I'm never asleep in bed. You're never bothering me. You can ask me anything and I'll come to your aid. The second parable is this one right here in Luke 18 about this, this persistent widow. And then the third parable is about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee's the good guy and the tax collector's the bad guy. And both of them go down to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, the good guy, he's like, God, I thank you that I'm so awesome and I obey and I keep the rules and I just want to pray to you right now. The tax collector, he prays like this, God, I can't even I can't even lift up my hands and I can't even lift up my eyes because I'm so sinful. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And guess what Jesus comments on that parable? He says, do you know whose prayers God heard and who he responded to? It was not the Pharisee. It was the bad guy, the tax collector. God's point is this, as Jesus is teaching us, he's trying to get us to stop seeing God a certain way as this unrighteous judge, this faraway deity that doesn't want anything to do with you. He's trying to get you to see God as a generous father who gives and gives and gives. And no matter how much he gives, he doesn't ever lack any because he has everything that you need. He continues to give. Think about the generosity of God for just a minute. I mean, in Genesis, he gives all things to Adam and Eve, except for one tree. And we as humans are like, why didn't he give us that tree, right? And that's kind of our response. And it's like, he gave us a world of yeses and one no. And then you track through the story and he's giving blessings and pouring out grace and pouring out mercy. And I mean, just constantly giving. You can actually trace an entire theme from Genesis to Revelation as God being a generous giver. Just gracious give. It's, it is who he is. That's what he loves to do. In fact, the parables make this especially known. I love this from Andrew Wilson. He wrote a great book called Spirit and Sacrament. Just listen to this from Andrew Wilson. He said, Jesus' parables strikingly, strikingly reinforce the picture of God as an irrepressible giver. 
even when they are not mainly about God. Once there was a farmer who scattered seeds so liberally that most of it didn't take root. Once there was a king who gave remittance for a debt of 10,000 talents. Once there was a vineyard owner who gave people far more than their work was worth. Once there was a father who gave away half his estate to his rebellious son and then gave him a feast when he came crawling back, having wasted it all. Once there was a nobleman who gave three months' wages to all his employees and then went on a foreign trip. Once there was a landowner who gave his vineyard over to his tenants. Once there was a king who gave a wedding, wedding invitations to every undesirable in the county. In fact, it's hard to think of a parable in which a God figure features and he is not characterized by giving away far more than he should. Maybe a barrier that you have to prayer is that you think that he is holding out. And what I'm saying is based on what Jesus is telling us in this parable, you are a helpless widow and he has everything you need. And if even an unrighteous judge is going to come through on this, how much more will he not come through for you? And this leads me to the third thing I want you to see, the third question. How does God really feel about our prayers? How does he feel about our prayers? If you were to pop into the presence of God right now and pray, what would his response be? What would his facial reaction be? Would he be like, oh, you again? How long is this going to take? Go ahead and start with your, you know, how much you love me and blah, 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 and then get to your thing that you want. Hurry, hurry up, get on out. Or would he be like, what are you doing here? Fancy seeing you here. No, no, no. See, the way that he sees you is not quite like the way that this judge saw this widow. See, some of you are like, okay, so the point of this story is that if I just have enough persistence with God in prayer, I can nag him and nag him and nag him and beat him down. And then eventually God's like, I'm about ready to pull my hair out. I'll just give you what you need. That's not the point. See, he's not a father like I'm a father. And what I mean by that is this. I love my kids. I have three kids. I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a little boy named Bear who is almost two. And, uh, and, and I love kids, but I think my new job as a parent is just primarily to say no most of the time. And I don't want to, but they ask me so many things all the time, constantly. And it's, it's like ridiculous. It's like, no, I can't give you pounds and pounds of candy all day. I can't do that. I would actually be like a really bad dad if I continued to do that. But, but it's this continual, like, uh, I'm not recommending the show, but Stu from Family Guy, anybody? Where it's like, mommy, mommy, mom, 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 Lois, Lois, mother. And it's like, that is our life in the Burkhardt house. And, and, and my daughters, I love them to death. They're amazing. They're the sweetest people ever. But man, wow. You know, I, I feel like I like make it, I'll start by saying no candy, zero candy. And then by the end of it, it's like, whew, only 10 pieces of candy. Like I, I did well on that one. I did well. And it's just continual. It's the persistence. It's hard. It's, it's very admirable. But even as a dad, you're just like the pant leg tugging. Fine, fine, fine. Yes, have it. Take it. Take it. God is not like that. How does he view you when you approach him in prayer? And even persistent prayer. Asking again and again. How does he, how does he feel about you? Well, look at what he says. Luke 18, verse 7. And will not God... Give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long 
over them. Will he not give justice to his elect? How does God feel about you? He feels like you are his elect. What does that mean? Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Some of you are like, I think I know what that means and it's scary. I don't like it. Let me just tell you what it means. Listen to Ephesians chapter one. This is what it means to be elect. Think about this. This is, this is you, any of you who come to Jesus for grace and faith and, and help. This is you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us or elected us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, look at this, we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. How does he feel about you? He's loved you before you ever existed. He's been obsessed with you before you were even born. He's known every detail about your life before you had the chance to sin. God in the Trinity had already worked out a plan of salvation and how he was going to rescue you. He knew what you would do. He knew what you wouldn't do. He knew the ways that you would fail. And with eyes wide open, he sent his son to live the life that you could not live, to die in your place, receiving the judgment of a righteous and just judge so that you and I could not approach God primarily as judge, but so that we could approach God as a loving father who wants to forgive us. He raised us from spiritual death because he raised from the dead. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a kingdom that can't ever be taken away. He gives us all these things out of a a lavish, just generous blessing upon blessing. And when it says his elect, that's all wrapped up in that phrase. So how does God view you? You're not the nagging kid pulling on his pant leg. You're his elect. Here's a better way to view yourself. Uh, my wife and I, when we had our first child, day one, day two of having Evie, she would cry and we would just freak out. It was like, like run over to the bed. What do you need? And all right, let's try this. And is she hungry? D- dirty diaper? I don't, you know, and, and it, was, it was like that constantly. Like every time she would cry, it was just like everything in us. We've got to go fix that. We've got to go. T- what, what's going on? That's how God views you. As this infant that when you sincerely cry out, he rushes to your aid. By the way, he doesn't view you as an infant like three or four weeks in. Because then that's very different. You're like, please stop. Please stop. I get it. This is enough. It's not as cute. Three three weeks in. But man, that initial cry. That's you when you pray. So, where do we go from here? Well, you're like the widow. Because you're helpless and you're vulnerable and you're in need. But you're not like the widow because you're not annoying. You're not beating this judge down continually with your persistence. 
you are a beloved adopted son or daughter. And you are approaching not an unrighteous judge, but a loving father. And when you get a hold of that, it will set you free to pray like crazy. So let me just share a story with you of the way that God responds to prayer, and I'll bring this to a close. One of my favorite stories from the Hebrides revival is the power of prayer. The power of prayer. And here's the short version of the story. Duncan Campbell, who led this revival uh, in the Hebrides, he was in, in a place called Barvis that had experienced just an explosion of revival. The Spirit of God being poured out in dramatic ways. So he travels from Barvis over to a village called Arnott. And Arnott had a lot of people that called themselves Christians, but probably didn't really care much about God. And the pastors in that village had heard about this revival. So what they did is they're like, hey, we don't trust this guy. We think the revival's sketchy. Don't have anything to do with it. There's some really nervous, weird stuff happening. It's making us nervous. So don't show up. To, to any of his sermons when he goes to preach. So Duncan Campbell, he shows up to Arnott, and he opens up his Bible, he's trying to preach. Nobody will come and listen. Nobody, zero people from the town come. So what he does is that night when he arrived, about uh, nine o'clock at night, he gets the people that he traveled with together. They get into a barn and they begin to pray in this barn. They pray from nine till 2 a.m., Around 2 a.m., nothing's happening. It's just normal prayer, nothing spectacular. 2 a.m. hits, and Duncan Campbell turns to this other friend, uh, John, who is a blacksmith in the area. And he says, John, why don't you just close us out in prayer? We're all tired. Why don't you just close us out in prayer? And John, very humbly and very passionately, uh, challenges God in prayer. And I just want you to listen to what he prays. This is a record of what he prayed. He said, God, do you know that your honor is at stake? Do you know that your honor is at stake. You promised to pour out water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and God, you are not doing it. There are five ministers in this meeting, and I don't know where one of them stands in your presence, not even Mr. Campbell, but if I know anything at all about my own poor heart, I think I can say, and I think that you know, that I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I'm thirsty to see this community gripped as you gripped Barvis. I'm longing for revival, and God, you are not doing it. I'm thirsty, and you promised to pour water on me. Then he paused, and then he cried out, God, I now take it upon myself to challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement. And this is a true story. As soon as he said those words, there was an earthquake in the village. And the barn that they were in began to shake. And everyone's starting to think of like Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and a few other things. Literally jugs and uh, various things on the walls were falling down and breaking. They're freaked out. They're all like turning white. They run out of the barn and hundreds and hundreds of people in the village had run out of their homes. It's like 2.30 in the morning, run out of their homes and were gathering at the church. Men were bringing chairs, women were bringing stools and they were saying, please tell us about Jesus. Please preach to us. And God began to save like crazy in the village. Duncan Campbell said he could not find one single family who wasn't touched by the power of God. When you cry to God in a sincere way like this, he responds and he hears and he listens because he's not an unrighteous judge and you're not some annoying widow. You're a son or a daughter and he is a loving father.